Hey friends, welcome to The Story Podcast. I am your host, Harris III, and I am so excited about another amazing episode. I'm excited to continue our conversation about the storytelling type, the artisan. If you're new with us here, we've been digging into a series around the five different storytelling types. We started with the amplifier. You want to go back and catch up on that in episodes one through four if you haven't already. And now we've been jumping into the artisan. We dug way back into the story vault for this feature and pulled out a conversation from the archives with the wildly talented Nashville fine artist, Ed Nash alongside our mutual friend, acclaimed photographer, Alan Clark. This was one of our very first podcast episodes from way back in the day, but Ed is the perfect person to go back to and give a re-listen to because he's an incredibly talented painter, or as we would consider in the context of our storytelling type conversations and artisan. Ed is a great friend of mine, and over the years, as I've heard him tell his story and watch him grow in his craft, as well as his popularity, to be honest, um, and the ways in which his paintings tell stories, it's all just incredible. I'm so excited for you to be either reacquainted with him or to be introduced to him and his work. His work has a deep connection to something called wabi-sabi, which means what is created is beauty that's sort of imperfect. It's impermanent and incomplete. The very story that this technique tells is incredible because of the way that his work challenges societal views on visual perfection. Featured from coast to coast here in the U.S., as well as over in his homeland of the U.K., Ed is not just a talented artist. He has a unique understanding of the way his medium relays story and connection to a watchful and often stuffy world. Through this episode, we continue to explore what it really means to be an artisan. Many would probably assume that most artisans are simply painters, dancers, musicians, but this is mostly because of the way they interpret the word art. The reality is that art is conclusive of a diverse range of human activity or products that involve a harnessing of the imagination and a talent to express beauty, emotional power, proficiency, and conceptual ideas. In other words, artisans are tapping into a very deep part of who we are and how we relate to the world around us. Let's listen carefully to Ed as he discusses not only his connection to the world around him, but to what he's creating and the story he hopes it tells and how it's interpreted by those that experience it. Let's jump in. I did that for like three or four years. And right, right just when we had um, my daughter, I started painting again. And I started taking my paintings to, along with me with the other paintings. And someone said, well, I don't, I kind of like your paintings more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. And that was the first time I took a painting along, so I'm bored. I'm, and I'm then, curious like what that moment was like the first time that you decided to stick one of yours in with the mix. Was that somebody else that encouraged you to do yeah, that? Yeah, someone else. Someone said, no, I showed it to someone else. I was like, man, these are beautiful. Mm -hmm. They were like, this is beautiful painting. I and mean, you should really take this along. And so I did. And uh, I said, we want to buy it. I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be $25,000. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so... Uh, well, and then, let me ask that question, though. Yeah. In the very beginning, what, you know, how did you figure out the pricing? What what were you thinking about? Like, you know, well, how did, did you value yourself? Well, I'd already, I mean, I'd seen paintings. I mean, I'd been selling paintings, you know, every week I'd look at about a thousand paintings. I was trying to figure out which ones to buy and which ones to... You know which ones I could represent, which ones I could sell, and you know, it's um, and and that was a really critical time because that period of time, 
I had so much exposure, really trained my eye. My eye was like, as a, visually, I knew what I liked. And a lot of artists don't really know what they like. It also gives you an and, objectivity. And the, so they don't know what to paint, or yeah, they don't know what yeah. to create. If I don't know the end goal of where I want to get to, how can I create this end goal? I mean, a lot of people, they just kind of like, oh, that's, that's great, I'm going to move on. So, but I really trained my eye during that time. And, 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 you know, I could spot like a little nick or I could spot someone that wasn't right in the painting or I could look at the balance of the painting and the composition and you end up looking at the breadth of an artist's work and you're like, well, I've seen, you know, hundreds of these paintings by the same artist. This is the best one. This is a good one. And so um, that that's something that you just, I mean, you can't teach that. You can't learn that apart from exposure. Um, and it was like, a, so it was like a four-year intense exposure to the art market and understanding how prices things were priced. So when I came to representing my paintings, I was like, well, you know, I know all these artists over here and this is how these are priced and I think mine should be priced in the same way. Yeah. You're talking about Monet's and stuff, right? Yeah. Actually, what I was selling was, was um, the, uh, the lesser-known American Impressionist paintings. So artists that painted at the same time as, as Monet and Cezanne, they went to the same places, depending at the same art schools, but they were just less known. Yeah, so and what I realized was that, um, you know, you kind of, people are, are buying, visually buying the painting, but they have to uh, mentally digest um, other aspects of the art, the byproducts, right? The byproducts is what, what people buy sometimes. The byproducts is what people, help people rationalize the, the visual beauty, you know? So I can, Visually, I'm attracted to the painting. You know, emotionally, I want to buy it, but mentally, how can I rationalize those those aspects? Would you say that when someone buys an expensive piece of art, that it's because of a story that they're telling themselves that they want to be true um, about who they are? No, I don't think I don't think it's that want to be true. I think I think sometimes that someone will see a painting, and they just they just have this like emotional connection to it, and and they're like, this is beautiful. This this kind of takes me somewhere that nothing has taken me before, mm -hmm. and um, I want to remember that experience, and I want that to be part of my house or my you know my my environment, and it reminds me of I think deep down what we were what we were made to do. I mean you know we were, we were creators, and when we find someone that's that's a beautiful creation, then I think we want to hang on to those experiences. It yeah. you know men mentally takes us somewhere. I want to get into your creative processes in a moment, but I'm curious about your kids. Uh-huh. Have you noticed anything about how they paint? Have you encouraged them to paint? What, yeah. what is it about kids that create so freely and then something happens and all of a sudden we care what everyone's going to think of our work? Yeah, I know. It's hard. I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's these really flashy advertisements and glossy spreads that kids want to create. They want they want the artwork to be beautifully finished. There's the, they they lose the raw creative energy. Like Picasso said, you know, we have, I have to learn how to paint like kids. <laughs> you know? mm. And so I, I think I think they uh, I noticed that with my like Rafe, he is he he just attacks the canvas. He'll do anything he can. He doesn't care. <laughs> he won't tell me. I, I said, what about this? No, that's that's not right. And then Lila, she's eight now, and so she's. But she's more interested in, in um, you know, portraiture and 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 getting and, and people and faces and and, and so I, I sort of see that creeping in. 
you know, and, you know, Ray's brilliant. You know, he'll do the painting and you're like, <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> I'm done now. You know, and Ray, buddy, it's not done. And that, there's a part of me that's like, it's not done. But he's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm like, well, let's sit down. And, you know, we'll have the background right here. <laughs> But, um, you know, he was at the studio the other day and he, he's, he wanted to go home. He said, it's time to go home. He said, no, we, we've got to create. We've got to create something. So he's always creating something. But, Does that make you proud? Yeah. But, I, I mean, the kids, every kid's, I mean, every kid likes art, you know. They, they like art when they're younger. I think it, that's what... How, how, can you, how can you stimulate that and, and help them as they get older? Um, and, and how can it be... You know, what you, what you learn is that Learning how to paint in an abstract way is actually is is a very it takes time for them. They can't do that. It's a harder thing for them to learn. They want to become more representational, more realistic. Yeah. As they get older. So let's dig into your process then. All right. Your creative process. You wake you wake up in the morning and paint every single day. Um, I f I find like more now. I have to fight to try and find the time to paint. In fact, I had, had a, John, a, a good uh, John Cleese quote of the day or a tweet. It was about how, you know, we have to, we're limited by the, the boundaries of space and the boundaries of time. And, um, and, and so that's kind of what limits me is time. <laughs> Not so much space because I've got to, I mean, but it's, it's like finding time between balancing all the other aspects of life. Sure. But I'll probably, I try to come in early. I try to get into the studio about six um, and paint in the morning um, and then deal with email and office in the afternoon and then come back have dinner with Alan Clark and maybe paint till midnight. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I know when to check on him. He, he goes in at night to get, again, get some alone time, just paint and sometimes I'll go by and disturb him and then we go grab something to eat. But are you like, are you like waking up in the morning and like while you're driving to the studio, you have these visions of oh, this is what I'm going to paint when I get there? Or is it when you stare at a blank canvas? Are you scared of a blank canvas? No, no, some t no, I'm not. I, I, I just sort of, I know that um, I, just, I just need to start it. I need you to start painting. It's very hard to find the time because I think the challenge is we, th we think we need more time than we need. Like, I think one of the, the frustrations that, that I used to have was that I'd need like four days, you know, of just alone time to make a painting. Waiting for inspiration. Yeah, waiting for inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a real challenge that really, that can often intimidate people to not actually do it in the first place. But in fact, once you start, it might only, you know, you might only need 10 minutes to start doing a little bit of painting and, and you're like, oh, great, now I can, now I've forgotten about all the other distractions of life. Now I can find the time to do it. So and you can kind of put everything out. How would you describe your style of art? You have a unique way of describing it. Yeah, I mean, it's really inspired by a Japanese philosophy called wabi-sabi. And it's a, it basically deals with finding beauty through the imperfection and beauty through the decay. And it speaks to finding um, like a spiritual longing and sort of an aesthetic based on on, on beauty through textures and history. So th this is, I, I sort of wrote this down so I, so I could, I could uh, deliver this properly, but it's, um, it's a Japanese process uh, called kintsugi, and it basically means golden repair. And it's the art of restoring broken pottery with gold. So the fractures are like, you know, they're actually illuminated. And it's a physical expression of its spirit. You know, it's ex a physical expression of the breaks that have been 
you know, that are part of the pottery. And so as a philosophy, it celebrates the imperfections as an integral part of the story, not something to be disguised. You know, and I think that's maybe what we try and do. We kind of hide the, hide the cracks. And the artists believe that when something has suffered damage and has history, it becomes more beautiful. Um, the true life of an object and, and really a person begins the moment that it breaks and reveals that it's vulnerable. And the gap between one's pristine appearance and its visible imperfection deepens its appeal. But, you know, it was a really humbling experience because I had to go back and do it all over again. Yeah. I'd been doing it nine years. I've been teaching people how to do it. Now I had to go back and do it again. I'm sure it was humbling. It was humbling. And, and um, I think it was, it was a good thing. And I, I decided I did want to do it again because I needed to remember how hard it was to start over again. And, and I was going to be starting over a new business again. And that job is really, I think one thing I learned from selling books was mentally how to talk to yourself in a really good way. Because as an artist, you're spending so much time by yourself. And, you know, by the time I'm working by myself or painting, um, you know, we have to emotionally speak to ourselves, emotionally speak to our soul in the right way. Um, otherwise, you know, you, you, it's you and yourself, <laughs> you know, you've got to be a good friend mentally. And I think that that can really inhibit some artists, I, I, I believe. I think that's one of the, the core strengths I've learned from that. Learning how to work hard physically, mentally, and emotionally. The, like, three critical things. Yeah. So what would you say, what would be your greatest piece of advice to all this, all the artists out there going, well, it's easy for Ed now, look at him, he's selling, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of art on a regular basis. I'm, I'm still doing this and ready to quit. What's your advice? I think sometimes, uh, actually, there was, I was listening to a podcast about a, uh, a quilter, I'm trying to remember his name. It was um, oh, Luke Hayes, and he makes quilts, modern-day quilter. And uh, he said, you know, we're all, he said, I think we're intimidated by feeling like we're an imposter, you know, but everyone's an imposter in their own world. And if you're doing things right and you creatively challenge yourselves, then you're an imposter in your own, you know, everyone thinks, you know, I'm looking at Harris, look at Harris, he's got it all together, mm -hmm. you know, but he's doing, you know, he's got this big conference he started and he's got his podcast and he's got his, you know, and he's got his illusions and, you know, he's got his whole brand. You're like, man, look at that, it's easy for Harris. But really, I'm sure when you started doing this conference, you're like, man, I've never done a conference before. I'm an imposter over here. But, and everyone's... Yeah, we're two years in, I still feel that way. Yeah, you know what I mean? I think yeah, we, totally. I think, I think we should feel like, everyone thinks like, oh, you know, I'll, you know, I need to have it together. I need to feel like I'm the artist before I'm an artist. You know, well, you want to be a filmmaker, you write, a, write a film, go make a film, and then you're a filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I, I feel like, um, I think they need to in really, I think if they aren't starting out, really enhance your craft. Get your craft right. Get it beautiful get exactly how you want it get it finished right get it market ready before you start to market and distribute it and that, that i think i think sometimes people get stuck halfway before they do the second part they haven't really refined where they want to get to before they yeah my i think some people might be listening and there's the risk of them misunderstanding you and hearing you say 
everything has to be perfect before you put it out there? Um, that's not not what I mean necessarily. Um, so by get it right, you don't mean wait until it's perfect before you ever do anything, because otherwise they'll never push anything. Out right, the door, right, right. No, you're right. You're right. Um, I just think you know, spend some time refining your craft before you before you send it out there to the world. How much would you say is an artist supposed to dedicate their time or at least their focus on like half of doing what they do with the other half being selling what they do? Or is it something else? Is it 70 something and 30 or whatever? You know what I mean? What is the yeah, percentage I, that I, you would I've, spend? I, it's probably, I'd say it's probably 20, 80. It's 20 making it, 80 marketing. Wow. See, that's, that's opposite of the, what everybody thinks to me, even me. And mm -hmm. I work pretty diggum hard. And it's mm -hmm. just mainly, you know, I've seen artists come in and they'll spend money uh, on us photographers and designers and mm -hmm. things like that. And, and they'll, they, they will spend most of the money on recording the project, a little bit of money on making it look good, and zero money on marketing it. And then they've mm -hmm. got a thousand CDs sitting in boxes in their garages. And to me, that's just sad mm -hmm. because they dumped that much love and, and care into what they were doing, but then nothing goes past that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's just a crime. That's a crime because, you know, this. not only is there a lot of people need to hear it, but you need to support yourself. You need to pay for what you did and things like that. And then you, to see that happen, to me, it has to be more than just a 20% well, effort. You know they're what I mean? Relying, they're, they're relying on the hope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know that, that's it. They're, they've... They've done all the, they've done the first part. Mm -hmm. You know, they've made the work. Yeah. But um, you know, in the world we live in now, we can distribute our own concepts, our own artwork, very easily. But I think people are challenged on how they do that. And I think I think people need to treat that. You know, you're back to what uh, what would they do? How would an artist do? I just you know, treat your treat it like a job. <laughs> <laughs> go to work. Yeah. Go to work hard. Go to work. This is your job. You know, it, be boring. You know, it, don't don't go out. You know, it, uh, <laughs> there's a there's a, if, you, if you read that um, there's a really good essay going around right now called uh, "Still Like an Artist." Mm -hmm. Have you seen it? If you read it, one, yeah. one of them's like, you know, live a boring life. <laughs> it's okay to be boring. <laughs> you know, focus on making great work, and. Um, that's a really good essay. You need to get him at the conference somehow. Yeah, Austin, he actually spoke his story two years ago. Did he? Austin Cleon. Oh, yeah. It's great. Yeah. It, you should follow him on Twitter if you don't. He's hilarious. Really? Yeah. Where was the the point at which you flipped the switch? At what point, like when you were selling and you decided to take your art before that, though, because before that is when you decided to flip the switch. When was that? What, do you remember this moment that you had that you were like, you know, why can't I do this? Why can't I not and, you know, put my art out there and sell it? Yeah, I, I remember... Before I started painting, I remember looking around and I, I, I saw what was here in Nashville, mm -hmm. and I was like, "Well, I know I can. I know my work's better than this. I mean, I, I know I could do this." And I saw a couple of artists doing what they were doing. They were doing it full time. I thought, "Well, man, if I can just do a little less than that, then <laughs> I can do just a little bit. I'm fine, you know." Yeah. And and so. Um, I think it was, but I, but I remember that point. It was after someone just bought that first painting. I thought this is this is so much easier. This is so much more fun, and I enjoy it. And and I was built, you know, I was I was made to make paintings, and now I can make as many paintings as I want. And now I feel like I'm playing catch up, which is almost why I work so hard, because I feel like I'm working on all the years that I didn't paint. Hmm. So I feel like I'm I'm working on. 
you know, th- 14 years of not, of not painting again. So I feel like I'm playing catch up. And I feel like I've got all this work I've got to get out that, that I hadn't got out that I've been suppressing. Hmm. And so I think right now I'm trying to learn how to, to balance it a little bit better. <laughs> and, and trying to learn how to, how to what, what, what's been really good the last few years is, is, is making sure that, I, that I'm outsourcing all the things that I, that I don't need to be doing. You know, and I'm really, you know, as I said earlier about Cleese and managing our time, boundaries of time and boundaries of space, well, making sure that we are using, you know, our most valuable resources um, or the most important part of our time to be doing the most important thing, which is painting, and then making sure that other people are doing the other parts, hiring good people to do, making frames, varnishing paintings, installing work, all these other, all these other aspects, and finding great people to be doing those to be doing those jobs and as an artist we don't have to do everything and I think that's what limits a lot of artists is they end up doing everything and so they don't really end up creating a really strong body of work because they're running around trying to do everything you know get out of the way pay someone else to do other things for you trade you know trade with them you find someone else and you know barter with them if they like your work do something else that so how let's sum this up okay if you're if you're looking out over the, your career and even the future mm-hmm. and like either where are you going or, you know, what would you like to have said about your life and, and how you've lived it as an artist? Um, I'd like, I'd, I would like to have, I'd like to be seen as, I'd like my kids to, to see that I was, I was a good dad and I was, um, you know, a good husband and, you know, and a balanced artist. <laughs> I, I mean, I, that, that's that's kind of what, um, and that's that's kind of where I'm mentally at. Trying to balance, just trying to balance all of it. I mean, just trying to juggle it all. To prove that not every famous, well-known, successful artist, three hundred years from now, had to live a life of depression and yeah, sorrow that yeah. ended in suicide. <laughs> exactly, or like burn out at thirty. You know, <laughs> and so you know, how can how can it be? Uh, how can your creativity? Be something that you can really enjoy and is, is, is sustaining and you can build a, you know, balanced life around. Man, I love Ed. I love how all of his years of experience, distraction, hard work, and finding his way has guided him in what he puts out into the world. He is insanely talented. You can probably sense it just by listening to him speak about the work he creates, but you'll definitely want to check it out online. His studio here in Nashville is always packed full of his latest work and commissions. Uh, you can find out more at ednashart.com. That's E-D, Ed, Nash, N-A-S-H, Art, A-R-T.com, ednashart.com. By now, you should be starting to hear us on repeat saying that everyone, quite literally everyone is a storyteller and everything is a story. It's incredible that regardless of the medium, books, dance, poetry, art, and music, just to name a few, how they impact everyone who comes in contact with them in a unique and different way. The lens through which we view the world shapes how we experience what artisans are putting out into the world, which makes it that much richer and deeper when we experience it. They are amazing 
storytellers. If you haven't already taken our storytelling type assessment to figure out what your core motivation and draw toward the power of story is, please do it. It's quick and it'll help you follow along in these conversations regardless of which type you are because learning about different types will help you leverage and understand the skills that they bring to the table like you never expected. It's great for you and it's great to understand others so that you can better collaborate and level up your overall creative process. I also hope that you'll consider joining us this year for Story 2022. It's happening in person and online. Tickets for in-person are going fast. There's just a few left. You can learn more at story2022.com. Again, I am Harris III. If you love the Story Podcast, please leave us a rating or review so we can stay in the top 1% of all of podcasts. We're so grateful for each and every single one of you that listen and send us feedback on a regular basis. We're so grateful that you're here and a part of the Story community. Until next time, keep telling stories that matter. The Story Podcast is a production of the Astoria Collective. It is hosted and curated by Harris III and produced, edited, and mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Studios. All music is provided by the talented musicians at Soundstripe. For more information about this podcast and other creative offerings from Story, visit storygatherings.com.